Jamie Lee Curtis was early. It was a few minutes before our interview was supposed to start, and I got a message from Gabe Mara, the producer of this program, that Jamie Lee Curtis was already in the Zoom room, hanging out, ready to go. So, of course, I hopped on right away. And there she was, on the screen, in a cabin that she owns. When I interview people, I always expect the more famous ones to be a little more standoffish, more guarded. But that's not always the case. And it was certainly not the case here. Turns out Jamie Lee Curtis is one of those people that talks to you right off the bat like she's known you forever, like your old friends. And on my side, having never met her, but having seen her in movies since the early 1980s, I felt like I knew her too. I'd expected to be intimidated because, you know, movie star, but this was a person seemingly without guile or ego or pretense. Instantly, I was hanging out with an old friend, but it just happened to be for a podcast. It's Depression Mode. I'm John Moe. I'm glad you're here. And I'm glad we can all be here together with Jamie Lee Curtis. Jamie's approach to conversation applies to how she talks about her substance use disorder. It carried on for years in secret, even while she was a huge movie star, because mental illness doesn't care if you're famous or not, successful or not. It comes for anyone. You want Jamie Lee Curtis's biography? Sure, okay. Jamie's mother is Janet Lee, legendary film actress, maybe best known as being the shower scene victim in the movie Psycho. Her father was Tony Curtis, star of Some Like It Hot, The Defiant Ones. Go look up Tony Curtis. Jamie's movie debut was in 1978 as Laurie Strode, the lead in the horror classic Halloween. She's done a ton of sequels for that one, including one coming out this coming October. More credits? Sure, okay. How about Trading Places, A Fish Called Wanda, True Lies, more recently Knives Out, and Everything Everywhere All at Once. I didn't even know that was her in that movie, that last movie, until the credits. It's a brilliant movie, especially brilliant about mental health. She's on the Hollywood Walk of Fame, won two Golden Globe Awards, won several Fangoria Chainsaw Awards, which is a, which is a, a horror kind of thing. Written several great children's books, co-created a fiction podcast series on Audible called Letters from Camp, final season just debuted. There's a reference to her husband in this interview, and that husband is Christopher Guest from Spinal Tap, Princess Bride, Waiting for Guffman. I was eager to hear about Jamie's substance use, her recovery, her fame, and all that goes with that. But I started with some questions about terminology. Well, to prepare for this, I've gone through the laborious task of watching many Jamie Lee Curtis movies and interviews because my job is so hard. Yes. The term that keeps coming up in interviews with you is show-off business. It's never show business. <laughs> it's show-off business. And I wonder if you could talk about why you use that term. Because we get so much fucking attention. The amount of attention given to people nowadays Show-off business was a sort of a precursor to it, but the internet and social media has now turned us all into attention whores, and we're all just wanting the attention. So for me, show-off business is, it's a way to not take any of it too seriously, which I try to do. I remind people it is a business, and there are business aspects to it that are crucial to its survival. And it's supposed to be fun. And so I, I try to use the term show-off business just to, you know, not take any of it too seriously. The other term that stood out for me is when you talk about your history with addiction, you use the yeah. term dope fiend. Yeah. Look at you, like, finding my repetitive phrasing. Hey, man, I do my research. I say I'm a dope fiend because I want to destigmify and demystify the term addict. To minimize my addiction is very easy to do. And I have to remind myself all the time that my addiction to opiates is no different than the person who is jonesing for fentanyl on the street today. So I like to refer to myself in that same way as a dope fiend because it makes it a little less fun and a little less glamorous. 
yeah, it's circumstances of your life happen to be that your addiction takes place in, in your world and not their world. Right. And it's important to me, very important to me, that I represent whatever version of truth I can represent, I need to represent it. It's very important to me that people don't look up to me as anything other than a human being who is trying, just like other people, to navigate all of this complex emotional, physical, spiritual, political world, show business world, show off business world, and that I am struggling with it just like everybody else. I, I want to get into how that addiction developed and, and where it took you, but but let's back up even further. You know, usually I say, well, where are you from? What were your parents like? You're in a position where, I, you know, your parents were famous. You grew up in show-off business. What were your experiences as a kid with the idea of mental health and with the idea of addiction? What did it mean to you? How is that formed? My grandfather committed suicide before I was born. My grandfather, paternal grandfather, died a week before I was born. My grandmother, my maternal grandmother, died of alcoholism. I remember when I used to go visit my grandmother as a child. She lived in an apartment in Los Angeles on um, Hyperion. And she lived with her husband. And they lived in a one-bedroom kind of regular old apartment. And I remember she was always in the bedroom. And when you walked in the door, the door was always shut. And when you walked in the door, there were twin beds. And she was bedridden. And she had a candle lit next to her bed to light her cigarettes. And I remember as a child walking in her room and getting lightheaded. Because if you leave a candle burning in a room with the doors shut, it eats all the oxygen. Yeah. And I, I have a distinct memory of being six or seven and walking into this room and seeing kind of stars and getting very dizzy. And I would, my memory is that my grandmother had little burn holes on her blanket. And years later, when my mother was smoking, I remember saying something to my mother like, hey, maybe you shouldn't smoke because grandma died of a stroke. And my mother said, oh, grandma didn't die from a stroke, sweetheart. I said, well, what did she die from? And she said she was an alcoholic. And I realized in that moment that my grandmother was a bedridden alcoholic woman who drank vodka from the beginning of the day to the end of the day and used a commode in the bedroom that her husband would empty. That's where alcoholism took my grandmother. So I have had plenty. Um, my, both of my parents were alcoholic addicts. Um, my father was um, a, a you know, a fairly uh, went to rehab and had a long history of drug addiction. Uh, my mother drank her whole life. So I have a clearly a, a very vivid painting of what depression, addiction, alcoholism, what that does to people and what that does to families. Did it occur to you, okay, this is this is all over my family tree. Is it going to come for me? Is this going to is this going to happen to me? No. No? No. Why not? No. Because you don't think that way. You just don't think that way. You think you're immune to everything. And last thing in the world, I thought, was that that would come for me. And for a very long time, played that game just fine with no repercussions, no near misses, no oopsie daisies at work. There was never, I never would be loaded at work. I would, you know, I was just a fun party girl and dabbled in all the things that people dabbled in when they had a little bit of money in their pocket, a little cocaine here, some alcohol here. I was a garden variety party girl. And, you know, most people 
aren't movie stars at age 19 as you were. Movie stars. Movie stars. I'll I, say it. Okay. I was the star of a movie, but I, I would not. There was very little effect that occurred once that movie came out. That movie was a little low-budget horror film that made a little dent in a very specific niche. And I did not get much work after it. So it was hardly like I had some sort of, all of a sudden people were interested in who I was and what I was doing. Okay. But you had success fairly early in life, you know, into your 20s, certainly. And did that make you feel like, okay, I've got this all nailed. I've got this figured out. Nothing's going to catch up with me? Or was there was there the anxiety and, and depression that might go along with, with fame at a relatively early age? Yeah, yeah. No, I think the depression that comes along is your own individual depression, that it isn't manifested by your career. It's manifested by your genes and your life experiences and the imprints of your parents and the profound effect that divorce has I am the product of 13 marriages in my immediate family of my mother, father, and stepfather. Wow. And I'm the product of a warring set of parents. Tony Curtis left Janet Lee for a 17-year-old girl who he married at 18 and had two children with almost immediately. So the war between Janet and Tony was very powerful. And the alliances that divorce forces in families for a child is a terrible burden to put on a kid. So I'm not going to pretend that show-off business had anything to do with depression or addiction. I would say that those wounds were, were much younger and much more based on the imprints of my parents. How old were you when your parents' divorce was at its loudest? Well, I like to refer to myself, if you had done your homework, <laughs> if you had been watching oh. like Freaky Friday <laughs> Things and got had done your homework, uh-huh. you would have read that my my favorite phrase is that I was the save the marriage baby who failed. Mm. You know, I think I was the save the marriage baby. And by the time I was born and walking around at two and a half. I think it was all pretty cooked at that point. And I think they were loud and aggressive alcoholics. And I think it, it, it took a toll. There's no question. I, if you look at pictures of me as a child, and I mean, I would show you one right here now. I won't spend the time because this is, you're lovely. And I'm not going to now look at my phone like all the teenagers do. (laughs) And I joke you not. I look stunned and shocked and frightened and surprised in every picture that my sister Kelly, beaming, smiling, teethy, and I look like someone just shouted in a very harsh tone, like, Jamie, and I I, I look like I'm, I don't know what's happening and that I'm in trouble. From a very young age, I really have this look of, what did I do? Did I do something wrong? And so I think that obviously had a, you know, that had a fairly big effect. It's formative. And so how is that still with you? Oh, much less so. Yeah. But do you find the little trails of it, though? Well, of course. I mean, yeah. I mean, I'm human. I've also raised two children. All and a lot of that comes back and bites you in the ass when you're a parent. But I have my own mind now, John. I have done good psychoanalysis. I've done good therapy. I am sober 23 years. I am a solid person. I know I know what I think. I know what I feel. I can communicate what I think and feel. My boundaries are strong. I am a solid person today. Congratulations. I thank you. Much less protean and sort of unformed and shape-shifting and subsuming into someone else and 
what you like, I like. And I look at life, John, as a game of, do you remember the game Guess Who? Yeah. Okay. I look at life now as the game of Guess Who, which is simply the process of elimination. I know what I don't like. That's how I found out who I am, is I found out who I am by what I don't want to be, what I don't like, what I like and don't like is based on an elimination of things rather than a real understanding of what it is I like. I have learned what I don't like. What are some of the things that you've learned over the years that you didn't like or who you didn't want to be? And how did you get that information? I don't want to be a liar. I don't want to be a fake. I have spent a long time trying to be real and have a relatable sense of reality to me. I, the child, as you mentioned, I'm the child of famous people. There is an assumption. There's a, a special lens by which you're viewed by other people. There's a smell that is, that, that precedes you when you walk in a room and follows you when you leave. People know who you are, even though you don't know who you are, because they've attached and ascribed something of existence to you because your parents are famous. And that what comes with that is some assumption, a lot of assumptions about who I am, how I was raised. And you end up defending your life. And I no longer defend my life. I'm now very happy being who I am. I've tried to spend my adulthood demystifying any impression you might have of me so that my actual integrity about who I am and what I stand for. And the only thing I prepared for since I knew what the name of your podcast was, <laughs> I literally, I did my homework and not uh -huh. ever listen, not ever listening to it <laughs> okay, and not reading anything about it. I heard from my young Padawan, Russell Goldman, that it's one of his favorite podcasts. Thank you, Russell. I'm a pun girl. I like okay. a good pun. <laughs> and so the title of your show has a lovely punniness to it. And I figured out who you were, what you were trying to do. And okay. this is what I brought you. This is my hostess gift. Oh. I like to bring a hostess gift. Here's my gift. I'm going to read from it. <clears throat> At such a time, it seems natural and good for me to ask myself these questions. What do I believe in? What must I fight for and what must I fight against? Our species is the only creative species and it has only one creative instrument, the individual mind and spirit of a man. Nothing was ever created by two men. There are no good collaborations, whether in music, in art, in poetry, in mathematics, in philosophy. Once the miracle of creation has taken place, the group can build and extend it, but the group never invents anything. The preciousness lies in the lonely mind of a man. And now the forces marshaled around the concept of the group have declared a war of extermination on the preciousness, the mind of man. By disparagement, by starvation, by repressions, forced direction, and the stunning hammer blows of conditioning. The free, roving mind is being pursued, roped, blunted, and drugged. It is a sad, suicidal course our species seems to have taken. And this, I believe, that the free, exploring mind of the individual human is the most valuable thing in the world. And this I would fight for, the freedom of the mind to take any direction it wishes undirected. And this I must fight against. Any idea, religion, or government which limits or destroys the individual. This is what I am and what I am about. I can understand why a system built on a pattern must try to destroy the free mind, for this is the one thing which can, by inspection, destroy such a system. Surely I can understand this, and I hate it, and I will fight against it to preserve the one thing that separates us from the uncreative beasts. If the glory can be killed, we are lost. That 
is who I am. That is from East of Eden by John Steinbeck. Okay. That is that free roving mind is my mind today. I have that mind. And I believe everything that he wrote here. Everything. How long has that quote been with you? 15 years. Sounds like it was pretty important. Maybe 20. It's, it moves me to tears as you heard me in that moment. I, I'm the forced hammer blows of conditioning. That's childhood. You know, there's an E.L. Doctorow quote, when things go unexamined for a long enough time, certain things happen. They become very, very powerful. They create conformity. They intimidate. You know, that's what I was raised in. That conformity, that calcification over this is what we think. And if you think outside of that, that is not okay with us. And I'm worried that our country and our society and our species is heading in that direction. Did I expect there to be John Steinbeck and E.L. Doctorow quotes in my Jamie Lee Curtis interview? No, I did not. But interviews are full of discoveries. In a moment, what Jamie did and did not discover about her famous parents and what happened when she discovered Vicodin. Back with Jamie Lee Curtis, show-off business star, self-professed dope fiend, and child of movie stars Janet Lee and Tony Curtis. When you grow up, with parents who are already famous and you can read about your parents in the tabloids and, and the spotlight is always there. Does it seem weird to you or do you just think that's the way things naturally are? And, and has that made you comfortable with getting a lot of attention later in life when you became a performer yourself? I don't think I read anything about my parents. Um, really what would happen is simply other people would talk about my parents because they were famous and you had to always be, you know, trying to be aware of was someone interested in me for me or was someone interested in me for some attention, access of attention, access to fame. Fame, it's a very, it's a very desirable commodity and people want to be close to it. Um, so that was always the tricky part about being a child. of I, mean, I wouldn't read anything about them necessarily. That's you know, and remember, the social media didn't exist, so you would have to go look for something. Which <laughs> You'd is have not to what find an do. army archer column in order to find right, out and them. and and be interested in it. And that you know, I was like most children. I don't know about your children. My children are not interested in what I do. Oh yeah, they no. <laughs> they appreciate it when it's good. They don't appreciate it when it's bad. They'll let me know. Which how they switch. feel about yeah, it, okay. but they are not, they are on their own lives. They are in their own lives. They are not required to know anything about my work. They don't look back at any of my old work any more than I looked back at my parents' work. Yeah. So let's talk about the dope fiend. Let's talk about Vicodin. When did that enter your life? When did that phase begin? So I had a minor plastic surgery procedure on a movie after I finished a movie when the cameraman had said that my eyes were too puffy to shoot one day and I had minor eye surgery and there were some complications. And the first day that I had that surgery, I was given Vicodin and it was just this magic elixir. It was like, whoa, this is amazing. But even at the time I, I managed to keep it at bay there, I don't even remember how and when. It was about a 10-year run. Often I would steal them from people. That, I heard, yeah, that's, that's interesting to me. But you say, wow, it was amazing. In what way was it amazing? How did it feel? Find, find the words for that rush. Well, no, because then anybody who's, who's a dope fiend out there is going to like start jonesing for dope. Okay. Um, you know, it's, I refer to it as the warm bath of an opiate. Right. It's like sinking into a warm bath. Yeah. It's that feeling that starts at the tip of your toes and goes all the way up to your head. It makes you feel safe. And it was a wonderful, you know, there's a reason 
that the world is now addicted to fentanyl. Yeah. It is, uh, opiates are very powerful drug and they make you feel really good. I'm very lucky that I never did heroin or I'd be dead today. And so after the surgery, you just never stopped taking Vicodin? Um, I would I, I would take them to the degree that I had them. I don't even remember. And honestly, I, there's no need for me to go back. I drank and, you know, somebody would break their leg and then I'd go over to make them a cake and then they'd go, oh, I can't take those pills. I'd be go, oh, I'll, I'll have them and use them as a recreational drug as a sort of in lieu of any sort of alcohol or I never liked smoking pot or anything. So it was just a nice feeling. It was a buzz. It was a very lovely high for a while it, when it was pleasant. Um, when it became addictive and I became addicted to it, it then became a dance of how do you find it? And again, if it was available on the internet, when I was in my use, I'd be dead today. If I had gone to heroin, I'd be dead today. I was lucky I got one time on a movie, a stuntman hooked me up with about 300 pills, which was the only time in my usage where I had that many. Prior to that, it would just be some manipulation of doctors, all of whom I've gone back to. I've cleaned my side of the street up. I'm a, a <laughs> card-carrying member of many recovery groups. I work with people every day. It'll be the single greatest thing of my life is that I have survived drug addiction and alcoholism to this moment, you know, here sitting talking to you. So how long did it take from being just the the casual, hey, this is kind of fun to what you would consider full-blown addiction? No, not very long. Yeah. Not very long. It lasted about 10 years. Yeah. I That surprises me that and I know you you have a, a genuine sense of humility about yourself, but you're Jamie Lee Curtis. Like, how could how could it be hard for you to get drugs in Los Angeles? I would think they would bring them to you on platters. Well, again, I didn't want to acknowledge that I needed drugs. So, you know, you would take them how you got them. It wasn't it wasn't that. I was never that person. It was just any addict knows it's the habitual part of it. It's the needing that feeling and wondering when you're going to get it. People have it with alcohol. When am I going to next get a glass of wine? How many people form their days around what time they get their wine? I dabbled in that to the degree that I did. It was serious enough with me that it would have killed me. That moment of clarity and then the recovery that I've had since then is incredibly important to me. And in the last, you know, 23 years, I've also started a whole new creative element of my life that I think would have been very difficult to do had I still been drinking and, and using drugs. So I don't. I'm clean and sober, very happily clean and sober. I, I don't try to sugarcoat it. And yet at the same time, I have a lot of other things that I now focus my life on. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds like you were very, f what they would call functional in that you were still working, you were getting oh. work and, oh, and no, nobody no, 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 knew no. what was going on. No, 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 no. No one knew in my entire family. Okay. Uh, I, no one knew. I refer to myself as an Everest bottom you know, people call themselves low bottoms. I was an Everest bottom. I lost nothing. I got more fame, more prestige, more work. My family life was good. I had a lot of friends. So I lost nothing except my self-worth, which is an internal job. So when I was looking in the mirror, I was looking at the problem. The problem was not outside me. It was a secret I only talked about it because it's important to talk about your secrets because it can save the life of other people. And honestly, John Moe, it was a journalist who wrote an article in Esquire magazine called Vicodin, My Vicodin, which I read in January of 1999 and got sober February 3rd. Tom Chiarella, right? Tom Chiarella wrote an article about his own addiction to painkillers. And 
the preamble to the whole article, and I paraphrase because his writing is so good, you, you need to read the writing. But he basically said, I don't know where my wedding certificate is. I don't know where the birth certificates for my children are, but I can tell you where every single Vicodin is hidden in my house. And then proceeded to say that there were two in the left cowboy boot toe in the guest closet. There were three in the bill of his Chicago White Sox hat. You know, he knew where they were. And that level of obsession was my level of obsession. And when he outed himself in that magazine, he did so to save his life. He was saying to his wife, to his family, to his boss, to his editor, to his doctors, hey, everybody, guess what? I've been, you know, on this hunt for a while. And by doing so, the jig was up. And honestly, he saved, I have contacted him. I, I'm friendly with him. He saved my life because it made me feel not so alone. Okay. So that you wanted the relief that you saw in him? I just, I, I somehow felt like him telling that secret that I so identified with. I thought, oh, I'm not... I'm not terminally unique. There's somebody else out there who has become addicted to this. And it required me to look in the mirror. And it really did help me. It's the reason why I've been so public, John. I've been very public about my recovery, specifically so if there's one person in the universe who identifies with anything I have said here today, and ultimately get sober, then any public exposure is worth it for me. I will say this to you. There's a phrase in recovery. I'm sure you know it. You're only as sick as your secrets. Mm. And for me, Tom Chiarella, exposing that secret in an article. And by the way, why the fuck did I pick up Esquire magazine? <laughs> Were you I on a flight somewhere? Because <laughs> no, that's what I, I was literally, I have with. no idea. <laughs> <laughs> why I saw an article in Esquire magazine. Of all things. That had, who was that horrible, it was like a reality TV show host man. Anyway, he's on the cover of this magazine. I have no idea why I would see that article. And yeah. that article changed my life. Yeah. Well, maybe there was, maybe you were subconsciously looking for an article like that. For sure I was. That TV host Jamie mentioned who was on the cover of Esquire, January of 1999, Jerry Springer. I looked it up. Just ahead, Jamie learns a lot more about her substance use disorder, and she moves forward. Hey there, quick favor to ask. Will you help us out by taking a five-minute survey at MaximumFun.org survey? As you know, most of the support for MaxFund comes directly from folks like you, but many of our shows and our network also rely on limited advertising for some revenue. This survey helps us attract advertisers that are a good fit for the audiences of our shows, and it helps many of our hosts secure a bit of extra income. It should only take a few minutes to complete, and you'll get a discount at MaxFund store when you do. That's MaximumFun.org survey. Thanks. I'm Lisa Hannawalt. And I'm Emily Heller. Nine years ago, we started a podcast to try and learn something new every episode. Things have gone a little off the rails since then. <laughs> Tune in to hear about low stakes neighborhood drama, gardening, the sordid, nasty underbelly of the horse girl lifestyle, hot sauce, addiction to TV, and sweaty takes on celebrity culture, and the weirdest, grossest stuff you can find on wikipedia.org. We'll read all of it no matter how gross. <laughs> There's something for everyone on our podcast, Baby Geniuses, hosted by us, two horny adult idiots. Hang out with us as we try and fail to retain any knowledge at all. Every other week on Maximum Fun. Back with Jamie Lee Curtis, we've been talking about her years of active addiction to Vicodin and her ongoing recovery. The type of addiction that you're talking about, is it similar 
in any way to love? No, 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 no. Love is love. Yeah. Addiction. You're not in love with the substance then. Here's something interesting. My husband and I randomly started to watch The Wire the other day. Many people, if you're fans of a certain type of show that you watch, and many people will say, well, did you see The Wire? And you go, no. And they go, oh, got to watch The Wire. And so it's been on a sort of a list of ours that, you know, and the other day we watched a couple of them. And there was a scene where there was an undercover cop trying to look like a junkie. And they brought in a real junkie who was an informant to vet him as he, the guy was showing off what he was going to wear. And, and he hasn't bathed in a few days and he's urinated on his pants so that they have the smell of urine. And the guy was wearing a wedding ring. The undercover cop was wearing a wedding ring. And the junkie said, what's that? He goes, my wedding ring. He goes, uh-uh, you're married to the junk. Yeah. You're not married to your wife. You're married to the junk. Got to take that off. You would have pawned that ring for dope. I don't want to refer to addiction as love. And I, as I said, in the very high bottom, I did not lose my marriage. My husband did not leave me. He did not take my children. I did not lose my job, my profession. Many, 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 many women do. Many men and women, but I'm a recovering woman alcoholic, and there are many women in prison today under the lash of alcoholism. They drove a car. They killed people. They are normal people. They are good people. They are not bad people. They are alcoholic. They are addicted to substances. And under the lash of that, their lives changed irrevocably forever. That was not my story. But the reason I talk about being a dope fiend is so that I don't forget that that is where my addiction wanted me. My addiction wants me dead, period, end of story. The only thing my addiction wants is me dead. Then it will move on to the next person. And I like to demystify it, to remind myself that when I'm in a room of recovery, and there is a junkie coming off the street. I am no different than that junkie. No different at all. Doesn't matter who my family was, what my economic background is. Drug addiction, alcoholism knows no boundary. It doesn't give a fuck about gender, ethnicity, religion, education, none of it. It wants you dead whoever you are. It doesn't give a flying fuck who you are. It just wants you dead. Did anybody who you didn't want to know about your addiction ever find out? Did you ever get spotted before you got sober? You must have read the article about my Brazilian friend, Ruthie. I, I did. <laughs> I remember something. I didn't remember her being Brazilian or named Ruthie. She's Brazilian. And Ruthie is a healer, a body worker, a beautiful human being, a friend, and someone who I have employed and known and is part of our family, friend family for a long time, knows a lot of people I know. And she, in December of 1998, she was staying with us in this very cabin where I am right now. And it was, you know, Vika clock about 5.30, and I was, you know, doing the quotidian part of my day. I had two kids. I was making dinner. Christmas was coming. I was making the mental lists of what else I needed to get and what I needed to get for the Christmas dinner and all the myriad things that all the women in the world take care of. You men don't do shit. And I was having a glass of wine and I had about five Vicodin in my pocket and I, you know, pocketed them and downed them. And from behind me, I'm looking out the window in, in a beautiful mountainous location, trees, snow, beautiful late afternoon light. And from behind me, 
Ruthie had spotted Jamie taking those pills and she called her out, told her that, you know, Jamie might think she's so great, but in reality, she's actually dead. According to Ruthie, Jamie was a dead woman. There was that moment where I was embarrassed and, you know, probably cried and said how hard my fucking life was or whatever excuse I made. And that was December of 1998. And then I read the article in January of 1999. And the combination of those two moments propelled me to seek help. And then you came back alive from having been dead? Yo, I'm I'm so fucking alive. It's You're I'm very alive now. M- but did you come alive again as soon as uh You know what? I was a high bottom. Yeah. I was acting alive. Yeah. I was acting alive. Now I am fully full tilt boogie alive. I am <laughs> on fire alive. This is not a performance. <laughs> there is no performance. I let go of performing anything. I don't care anymore. Yeah. I I am 100% alive. And If I'm going to write a book, which I'll never write, it's Live Like You're Dead and Die Alive is the name of the book. Live Like You're Dead and Die Alive. I want to die alive. I want to die in my full aliveness, creatively, emotionally, spiritually, physically. You know, I don't want to die dead. I don't want to be some calcified old version of me. I keep shedding myself. I am a constant shedder. I peel off layers of myself every day. That's a book right there. And live like you're dead means all the things that people say about you, all of the philanthropy that's going to happen when you're dead, all of those things, do it when you're alive. You know, say it to the people that you care about now. Don't wait till they're dead and then stand up there on a lectern and weep. Tell people who they are, that you love them. It's really interesting to me, and and you've brought this up already, that in the years following your sobriety, and it's been quite a while now, and congratulations, you've branched out in many directions. You've got brands, you've written children's books. Well, I wrote children's books before. Okay. I wrote children's books before, but since then, I have raised two children to adulthood. I have married both of my children in the backyard of our home. I am still married to my first husband. I am only going to be married to my first husband. I have thought I was done with something creatively and all of a sudden it gave me new opportunities to work and now I am taking full advantage of it and now have a creative company and I actually get to take ideas and buy books and develop them into movies and television shows and podcasts. And I'm alive creatively in a way that I've never been. That's wonderful. Tell me about um, Letters from Camp. And Letters from Camp that is. is a scripted comedy podcast for families and tweens. It's set in 2005 because we didn't want to deal with the internet and the evils of the internet. And mm-hmm. I, I say that with a capital E. I think it's a very dangerous thing that's happened to our our children. We wanted to set the show in in a time of nostalgia when in fact going to camp was just going to camp and having that wonderful experience. You met your wife at camp? Yeah. There's a timelessness about camp. It doesn't exist in any particular time. Well, it does if it involves social media, it does. Where right. back in the day there was it is timeless and something that everyone who went to camp can identify with. It's also about coming of age. It's about figuring out who we are. The motto of the camp, which is a fictional camp called Camp Cartwright, the motto of the camp is be you. And so for three seasons, we get to meet a girl named Mookie Hooper, who's a New York sophisticated girl whose mom is a newswoman and kind of famous And she goes to sleepaway camp where her mother once went, where her mother was very famous. And it's about learning who you are. So it's a coming of age story about Mookie Hooper and the people she meets. There's a little mystery in the middle of it. And they're really funny performances and music. And it's something that Audible has gotten behind from the beginning. We knew we were gonna do three seasons from the beginning. 
And this is our last season. It's the it's the final summer. And Mookie gets bitten by the love bug. A wonderful actor named Jacob Tremblay plays Tallahassee Goldman, who's the <laughs> beautiful Jewish kid from Florida who captures Mookie's heart. It's also there's some real depth in the show, and I cannot give it away on this recording. But when we are done, I will tell you the very emotional end of the show, which has been tracking for three years. But there's a real emotional moment of who we are as human beings. And it has depth and humor and sort of everything good that you would want for a young person to hear. What do you want young people who hear this to take away from it? That you are enough, that being you and that you don't have to know everything and that everyone is struggling and everyone's trying to figure it out. And even the popular girl, I promise you, <laughs> will never be as happy as you think she is. And people who get that big success in sports or arts or whatever in high school and junior high, all of your struggles will be worth it, that it is a, an exploration of your own life. And the minute you compare yourself to other person, you're going to end up in despair and that you are enough and that life is for living. It's funny. I wrote a, a memoir that came out a couple of years ago about mental health. And after it came out, a girl who was around 14, 15, who I, when I was 14 or 15, wrote to me and said, this surprises me. I thought you, you were the one who had everything together. And, and then you wrote this book about how, how much pain you were in. And, and I, and I wrote back to her and I said, you were a cheerleader. I thought you were the one who had everything right. together. And she was just as messed up as I was. And then as I talk to people, I'm like, oh my gosh, we were all putting on an act. We were all performing as if we had our shit together and we didn't. I will tell you that my favorite quote, if we're going to have a, like, I, I'm throwing out pithy quotes to you. Yeah, in, keep them uh, coming. Is from The Princess Bride. Life is pain, Highness, and anyone who says differently is selling something. <laughs> um, I believe that life is pain. Life is painful. Life is challenging for everybody. No one gets out alive and no one gets out unscathed. No one. And what we need to try to teach our children is to have their own mind. That the individual mind of a human being is the transformative tool to peace on earth, goodwill toward men, cures for diseases, all of the ills and, and problems of the universe are cured by individual minds, having ideas, building on those ideas, and then creating, you know, the cure for polio. I mean, all of the things you start thinking about the great cures in the world. Well, I think the individual mind of a human being is the most precious thing in all being. And it's being hunted. And as Steinbeck said, it's being drugged. And the stunning hammer blows of conditioning. What is conditioning? Be like us. Think like us. This is what we are. That's conditioning. And it's a suicidal course our species is taking if we don't protect the individual mind and liberties of human beings. And we're in trouble. We have a lot of work to do. We certainly have work to do. I have, I have a couple of questions that might be mildly annoying. Okay. One, if you're a huge fan of The Princess Bride, was it troubling to you when your husband played the baddie in the movie of that? Um, hardly. Uh, I wasn't <laughs> a fan of The Princess Bride until my husband, the six-fingered man, thank you, portrayed him. No, my husband is fantastic in them. The movie's a great movie. That is a great, that is a perfect movie, that movie. It's a wonderful movie. That's like movie. The Godfather, honestly. Yeah. The Godfather is a perfect movie. Godfather 2 is a perfect movie. The Princess Bride is a perfect movie. No argument there. I know we're we're heading for, for wrapping up here, but... Um, 
when you were growing up, did you have a shower in your house? And if so, did your mom let you use it? So my mother pretended that she never took another shower. And I think that was all kind of fun. And, you know, she had a shower in her bathroom, but she didn't. She took baths. Mm. She did take baths. Um, I'm not afraid in the shower. Okay. Um, I've had, by the way, I've had my own person come at me with uh, sharp objects. Yeah. For By the way, for 44 fucking years. Thank you. The next time we're on, we're going to talk about trauma, but we don't have time for it now. Yes, and I know I've seen the meme. It makes me laugh too. But the truth is, trauma, man. Trauma, yeah. trauma, trauma, trauma. It's a real thing. Yeah. It's a very real thing. It's a real thing. Yeah. Thank you so much. You're so lovely. Jamie Lee Curtis, thank you so much. Thank you. Super fun to talk to you, John Moe. We put all those quotes Jamie mentioned from Steinbeck and E.L. Dr. O and The Princess Bride, we put them all on our show page and the trauma meme that she just mentioned as well. Letters from Camp, Jamie's fiction podcast, is available on Audible. A Fish Called Wanda is available for streaming online, and it totally holds up. And go see everything, everywhere, all at once. Or as my mother-in-law calls it, everyone, everything, here we go. If people support our show, we can keep having a show. If they don't, we can't. If you haven't become a member, that's okay. We can take care of that. Just go to MaximumFun.org slash join. Find a level that works for you and become part of the show. Be sure to hit subscribe on our show. Give us five stars. Write reviews. That all helps. The Suicide and Crisis Lifeline is available in the United States by calling 988. Or you can call 1-800-273-8255. The Crisis Text Line, also free, always available. Text the word HOME to 741-741. Our electric mail address is depressionmode at MaximumFun.org. If you're on Facebook, come check out our mental health discussion group, Preshi. Sometimes it's about the show. Sometimes it's just people helping each other out with information and support about mental health. It's a really wonderful community. Our Depression Mode newsletter is available on Substack. Search that up. I'm on Twitter, at John Moe. Hi, Credits listeners. If you watch the show City of Ghosts on Netflix, you will like it. I have an interview with the show's creator, Elizabeth Ito, coming out soon here. But uh, go check it out and get ready for that interview by watching City of Ghosts. It's so wonderful. It's not spooky. Don't worry. Depression Mode is produced by Gabe Mara. Our senior producer is Kevin Ferguson, and we get booking help from Merritt Davis. Rhett Miller wrote and performed our theme song, Building Wings. I'm always falling off of cliffs now Building wings on the way down I am figuring things out Building wings, building wings, building wings No one knows Maybe there's no reason I just keep believing No one knows the answer Maybe there's no answer I just keep on dancing Hi, this is Kyle from Appleton, Wisconsin Reminding you that this too shall pass Depression Mode is a production of Maximum Fun and Papa Chick I'm John Moe, bye now Org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.